way to head upstairs, just highlight again the fact that we are coming off of Vacation Bible School Week. We had a fantastic week this week, Vacation Bible School. We had about 100 kids, just short of 100 kids, just about every night this past week. And we're really blessed by tremendous leadership. It was so neat to see all of our adults all over our campus, all over our facility, pouring into, investing in the lives of these kids, teaching them stories of the Bible, leading them in fun games and activities, doing different crafts together, uh, instilling in them the, the reason why, the heartbeat behind why we do missions and the way we do missions together cooperatively as Southern Baptists. Just an, an all together, just a, a great week of ministry. And, and I want to just uh, give a, a big shout out to all of our leaders who participated and were involved in some way this week. Uh, it would not happen without you, and we're grateful for you. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 20 this morning. I've already mentioned earlier in the prayer time that we had that we're starting a new sermon series today on the Ten Commandments. And so all summer long, we will be studying our way through the Ten Commandments, looking at a different commandment each week. You may ask yourself, well, why, why are we doing that? Why would we study the Ten Commandments? What's the kind of the heartbeat or the motivation behind that? And I could say really there are many layers of explanation, many reasons as to why. One of which is just the simple fact that even though the Ten Commandments as a, as a whole, as a set, we might say the Ten Commandments as, a, as an entity are well known, in actuality, very few Christians know or can list the Ten Commandments today. And so we know of the Ten Commandments, we're familiar with the Ten Commandments as a, as a group, but how many of us can name individually the Ten Commandments uh, one by one, right? First Commandment, Second Commandment, Third Commandment. Well, hopefully by the end of this study, you'll know the Ten Commandments better. But also, I think it's important that we, that we understand the Ten Commandments because the Ten Commandments are in many ways the foundation of the law and understanding the relationship between the law and grace, between the gospel and the law is, is really paramount for understanding the, the, the Bible and its unifying themes. See, the, the Bible may be 66 books, but in actuality, it's telling one story and that story is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in order for us to understand the gospel, the story of Christ from beginning to end in the scripture, it's, un, it's important that we understand the, the place of the Old Testament and, and its teaching and its relationship in pointing the way toward Jesus. But as we do that, one of the key questions that we have to ask is, well, do we still live under the Old Testament law? Do we still have to follow the Old Testament law? And we will dig into that idea and examine it in great depth and detail over the next 10 weeks as we study our way through the Ten Commandments. You know, when we think about the Ten Commandments, we often refer to them as uh, the law. But what I want us to see from the outset this morning is that in reality, the Ten Commandments, though they are in many ways the foundation of the law, it is not, it's not necessarily adequate for us to say that the Ten Commandments are the whole of the law. And maybe it's, it's better for us to understand it in this way. 
We have in our legal system in the United States, we have a constitution and then we have laws that are built upon our constitution. And so one of the measures for any law that is passed, any piece of legislation, is the question, is it constitutional, right? We have a higher court system, and and our courts, uh, one of the things that they consider is the, the legality of our laws and the basis for whether or not a law is legal, the basis for not whether a law can stand is ultimately this question of constitutionality. Does this law fit with the Constitution? But if you've ever read through the Constitution, the Constitution does not lay out all of the laws. It would not be fair to say that the Constitution is itself the, the law of our land, as if we might think that all of the laws are found within the Constitution, and yet we think of the Constitution as the law of the land because it is the basis for which our laws are built. That makes sense when you think of it that way? So we have a legal system with new laws being written all the time, right? Even here in, uh, in, in our own state, I know there are, some, there are some state questions that are coming up at the end of the month, elections that are coming. And, and even in that, it's just a process of, uh, of going through this legal system, potentially adding new pieces of legislation, adding new laws. Certain laws are voted upon by people before they become binding. And, and even in all of that, ultimately, there's going to be some, some uh, case at some point likely that's going to challenge the constitutionality of those laws. Are they legal? Are they binding? Do they fit under the umbrella, the foundation created by our Constitution? Well, the Ten Commandments work in much the same way. There was a system of over 600 laws laid out in the Old Testament. And we find these laws in books like Leviticus and the book of Deuteronomy. There are ceremonial laws. There are dietary laws. There are ritual laws. There are civil laws. There were laws that set the rules for how people were to live with one another, how people were to relate to to religious matters, matters of worship, matters of diet, matters of faith and practice. And ultimately, all of these things were derived from the understanding of how the Israelites were to relate to God as the people of God. And that was built upon the, the framework or the foundation of the law that was laid out in the Ten Commandments, much the same way that our laws are built upon the foundation of the Constitution. Oftentimes today, when we think of the Ten Commandments, we refer to them as, as just that, the commandments, right? Did you know that actually in, in the Old Testament, they're not referred to as commandments at all? Actually, in the Old Testament, they're referred to as the Ten Words. You'll find, you'll find the phrase decalogue sometimes used to refer to the Ten Commandments. And that word decalogue refers to the fact that they are ten words. They are the ten foundational statements, the ten foundational laws. Now, I don't mean to say that it's, I don't mean to say that it's wrong for us to call them the Ten Commandments. That's a tradition that's well established and has been built over a lot of time. I'm not trying to do away with that. But I just mean to say that these these commandments as we know them are really words. They are foundational statements upon which the laws of the people 
were built. The laws of the people of Israel were built. And so as we dig into this, we want to understand this. In, in modern day sense, we, uh, we have heard a lot about the Ten Commandments in, in, in our modern day and time, right? Even here in Oklahoma, within the last few years, there was, there was a, a well-known case of the Ten Commandments monument or Ten Commandments statue that was on a piece of government property that was ordered to be removed because it was determined that it was favoring uh, one religion. And so it violated the idea of the separation of church and state. And, and there's a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, arguments, legal arguments, cultural pop arguments about was that right? Was that wrong? You'll hear people say things all the time about you know, we used to post the Ten Commandments in our schools and we used to have the Ten Commandments in our courthouses and, and, and you can see the decay, the moral decay of our society since we took away the Ten Commandments. But I want to make this bold statement, this bold claim this morning uh, as, as we dig into this, that I would contend to you that long before we took the Ten Commandments down from the the government building near the state capitol. Long before the Ten Commandments were taken out of the classrooms, that we as a people, as a, as a society, as a culture, have drifted away from the Ten Commandments and their moral compass that they provide for us as a foundation for our culture and our faith today. I mean to say that that well before we took them down off the walls, we began to regard them as mere decoration. Well before we removed them from the state capitol, we began to think of them as uh, passe statements from a bygone era. And my point is not to make the argument that we need to put the Ten Commandments back on the walls in the schools or that we need to put the statue back up. Those are political things, and I have an opinion about those. It doesn't make my opinion right or wrong. But my, my contention throughout this series will be this, that as the people of God, we ought not to dismiss ourselves from obedience to the Ten Commandments. We ought not to think, well, that's the Old Testament and it's no longer binding. Maybe you've heard someone say before even something like, well, you know, we're no longer under the law, but under grace. Yet even Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 5, that we read already this morning, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. See, the point is this. Jesus never said, forget about the Old Testament law, especially when in the sense that we consider the Ten Commandments, the moral foundation, the constitutional foundational principles for which all of the law was built. There are certain, there are certain ceremonial laws, perhaps, that we are no longer required to fulfill because Jesus gives us a new and a better way. There are certain there are certain civil laws that we are no longer bound to. But never does the New Testament or the teaching of Jesus wipe away the Ten Commandments and say, don't follow those. In fact, what we will see is that in reality, Jesus builds upon the Ten Commandments, as he says in Matthew chapter 5, that he came not only to abolish those, but to fulfill them. And he says, anyone who will keep and teach these will be blessed. And so because Jesus himself said that we ought to keep the Ten Commandments and we ought to teach the Ten Commandments, then our desire is to dig in to these 
week by week, we're going we're gonna to divvy them up. Warren Wearsby, a well-known pastor and Christian writer, gives us some principles based in the New Testament of the relationship between the law of Israel and, and our position in Christ. And he says this, that the purpose of the law was to reveal the glory of God and his holiness. The purpose of the law was to reveal man's sinfulness. The purpose of the law was to mark Israel as God's chosen people and to separate them from other nations of the world. The purpose of the law was to give Israel a standard for godly living so that they might inherit the land and enjoy its blessings. The purpose of the law was to prepare Israel for the coming of Christ. And ultimately, the purpose of the law was to illustrate in type and ceremony the person and work of Christ. Now, you may not have been able to scratch notes for all of those. If you really want to get all of that, I can give it to you at a different time. But this is what I really want you to hear. I want this to be sort of your, your takeaway from that understanding what, what Wearsby wrote is that the law serves a purpose for us today and that the law points us toward faith in Jesus Christ. When we understand ultimately the meaning behind these 10 commandments, it points us toward our need for a savior. It points us toward faith in Christ. And we'll see that even in our study of these commandments. Generally speaking, we can take the 10 commandments and divide them into two general categories. The first four commandments have to do with our relationship to God. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not have an idol. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. You shall not, or rather you shall remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Those first four commandments deal with our relationship to God. The, The next six, the final six commandments deal with our relationships with one another. And and the purpose of all of that is to remind us that as the people of God, we are called into a relationship with God and also into a relationship with one another as the people of God. Martin Luther, in the larger catechism, writes this about this first commandment. And then in a moment, we'll read Exodus chapter 20 and and really dig into our study of this commandment. But Martin Luther writes this. Thou shalt have and worship me alone as thy God. What is the force of this? And how is this to be understood? What does it mean to have a God? Or what is God? The answer is this. A God means that from which we are to expect all good and to which we are to take refuge in all distress. So that to have a God is nothing else than to trust and believe in him from whom the whole heart As I have often said, the confidence of faith of the heart alone make both God and an idol. That now I say upon which you set your heart and put your trust is properly your God. Luther says that in which you place your faith and your trust is your God. And so let's consider together the first commandment which tells us that we are to have no other gods In Exodus chapter 20, we find these words written. And God spoke all the words saying, I am the Lord your God 
who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. The events in Exodus chapter 20 are taking place. It tells us in Exodus chapter 19, these events are taking place after the third new moon, after the Israelites escaped from Egypt. So essentially the third new moon, three months after they have fled from Egypt, as they were wandering in the wilderness, the children of Israel have made an encampment in the wilderness at the base of Mount Sinai. In Exodus chapter 19, you will find that God spoke to Moses and he told Moses, he was calling from the mountain, he was calling up to Moses to come to him on top of the mountain. And God told Moses that he wanted wanted Moses to call the people together, the children of Israel together at the base of Mount Sinai. And there at the base of Mount Sinai, they they were to listen and that God would speak his word to them. And God told Moses, tell the people, you are to mark off the mountain and no one is to go near the mountain. No one is to touch the mountain or else they will surely die. And so Moses did as God told him to do. The children of Israel were called together. They were encamped in the wilderness at the, at the base of Mount Sinai. They marked off the, the, the basic perimeter of the mountain. And the children of Israel were told, no one is to go near the mountain. No one is to touch the mountain or else you will die. And then the children of Israel listened as the voice of God spoke from heaven. It descended, the glory of God descended on top of Mount Sinai. There was a great pillar of smoke and God, this thunderous voice of God spoke to them. In fact, skip ahead and look at verse 18, Exodus chapter 20, verse 18. It says, when all the people saw the thunder and flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak lest we die. The people were so frightened by the voice of God as the mountain shook and God spoke the law to them that their response after God spoke the law was, Moses, this is too much for us. You speak to us. Don't let God speak to us or we will die. But as God spoke, as, as the, the, the sound of thunder and the flash of lightning and the smoke of fire descended on Mount Sinai and the voice of God spoke the word to them, this is what God said. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, You shall have no other gods before me. Now, that that phrase, no other gods before me, that's one that scholars study and and, and they really dissect because the literal meaning of that phrase in the original language, if we were to read it literally, it would say, you are to have no other gods before my face. What does that mean? No other gods before my face. Sometimes it's, it's, it's uh, transcribed or, or rather translated to say, you shall have no other gods beside me. The idea of no other gods in addition to me. I alone am to be your God. You are to have no other gods before me. Does that mean that we can have other gods, but that this God needs to be just first? The answer is, of course, no. It means that God alone is to be our God, that we are to be set apart, we are to be holy, we are to be his people. He alone is God. We worship him alone and no one or nothing else. And you may hear that and you may think, well, that's easy. I don't have any other gods. I'm not, I don't, I'm not 
struggling with worshiping other gods. You come to my house, there's no statue to another god. See, for, for many of us, the temptation is to think that, that it's easy for us not to have other gods like we might think of other people in different cultures around the globe today, right? We think of, we think of a, a culture like uh, that of people in India who practice Hinduism or perhaps people in Eastern Asia who, product, who practice Buddhism or people in the Middle East who, uh, who practice Islam. And we think well, they have other gods. They don't have our God, but it's, it's easy for us. We, I'm not struggling with, you know, bowing down to a, a, a statue of another God. And yet I would contend this to you, that in actuality for us today, the, the struggle is as real as it has ever been against the temptation to bow down to other gods. That we wrestle today as much as ever with the idea of having other gods. See, it's just that the form of our other gods, if you will, has changed. You and I may not wrestle with bowing down to a, a small statue of a false idol. We'll deal more with the idea of idolatry next week because that's really the subject of the second commandment. But you may think, I, it's, it's easy. I don't struggle with having other gods. And yet, I would propose that every one of us struggle with this contention against other gods. And the, the greatest god that we wrestle against is the god of self we live in a day and time, culturally, philosophically, when we have become our own God. You are God. I am God. We live in a day in which we struggle with the God of self. And the God of self says that self-actualization is the great good. Isn't it common today? I mean, think about the 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 driving cultural philosophy of our day, which says that the greatest sin that a person can commit is to not be true to who they really are. The greatest wrong, the greatest injustice in the world today is when someone is not allowed to be their true self, whoever they really are, whatever they may choose to identify as. And if we, if we don't allow that person to identify or be who they want to be, then we are oppressing them and we are keeping them from uh, actualizing their, their great self good and their self-awareness and their authentic being their authentic true self. And that's, that's the great sin in our culture today is to keep anyone from being who they really are or they really choose to be. And I would say that that is, that is in itself maybe the, the perfect definition of this idol of self, this God of self. We bow down to the God of self when we listen to our wants and our needs and our desires over and above any other authority or any other guiding force, when we choose to do what makes us feel good and happy and true and authentic and alive, rather than conforming our wants and our desires to the authoritative ancient text of Scripture, then we are bowing down to the God of self. It's everywhere in our culture today. We have made ourselves God, and yet in that we've convinced ourselves that we don't 
struggle with idolatry. We do. It's just that we're too blind to see that the greatest idol we've created is ourselves. But not only do we wrestle against the God of self, we wrestle against the God of money. We wrestle against the God of power. We wrestle against the God of pleasure. We have all of these gods. And you may think, well, it's not Buddha. It's not, it's not, uh, it's not Hinduism. It's not, it's not some other religion. And, and, and well and true, it may not be another religion, but it is very much a struggle against having other gods before the one true God. And God speaks this word to his people at Sinai. I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. The answer for us is to heed the word of Jesus who tells us Matthew chapter 22, verse 37 and 38. In summarizing the law, Jesus says that the first and greatest commandment is this. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. In other words, Jesus tells us that the greatest commandment is that we are to put God first. Above ourselves. Above the desire for money or power or or pleasure, that we are to put God first. We are to give God first place in our lives. If we are to keep his moral law, his commands, we must give him first place. And so what I would like for us to do this morning is to look at four different ways in which we give God first place in our lives. Four different ways in which God deserves to be first. And, and I won't, listen, I wouldn't say that, that this is, is everything, right? That I, reasonably, you could come up with maybe another way that I haven't covered. But I've tried to structure these points in such a way that they become sort of an, an, an umbrella of sorts. That there are many different things that fit within these broad categories, these broad ways in which we need to give God first place. The first one is this. And, and I would say that this, this, is, this is foundational. That God deserves first place in your heart. That if you, are, if you are to honor God as Lord, if you are to have no other gods before him, then he must be first place in your heart. In order for God to be first place in your heart, then you must Surrender your life to him. You must call on the name of Jesus by faith. You must trust him as Lord and Savior. You must surrender your will at the altar of Christ. You must say to him, God, I am a sinner. I admit my sin before you. I believe that you sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross for my sin. And I confess you as Savior and Lord of my life. In order for God to be first place in your heart, you have to surrender your heart to him. It's, this is about trusting in Jesus for your salvation. See, none of the rest of this works 
until you have surrendered your life to him. You can try to follow the law. You can try to be good. You can try to do this on your own. But what you will find is that you fall short again and again. And that even, Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 3, is the purpose of the law. Is that it sets a standard for us that we could not hope to keep on our own in order that we might understand that we need someone who could keep the law for us. And God proved that by giving us Jesus. He did that for us by giving us Jesus. So in order for us to keep this commandment, we have to give God first place in our hearts. Secondly, we honor God as Lord. We have no other gods before him by giving him first place in your home. Excuse me, in your hopes, in your hopes. I saw the screen jump to hopes and realized I had jumped to point three. Now you know what three is. You can skip ahead and fill that one in too, right? In your hopes. And this is what I mean when I say our hopes. Our desires. Our desires. Our wants. See, it's not just that we surrender our heart to him, but we have to surrender our desires. We conform our will to his. First John chapter 2 tells us that all that is in the world the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of life is passing away in this world with it. In other words, our desires and all the desire of this world is broken because our desires are naturally aimed at things in this world. We want things in this world. And then not only do we want things in this world, but we want the things in this world to satisfy us, to fill the longing inside of our hearts. And they cannot. They simply cannot. And it's not until our, our hearts are transformed and our hopes are reformed that we begin to want and pursue and seek after the right things. See, in order for God to be first place, he has to be first place in our hearts, but he has to be first place in our hopes, in our wants, in our desires. I mean, quite simply, do you desire the will of God more than you desire anything else? Do you want what God wants or do you want what you want? Are you willing to Bring your wants and your desires into submission to his will. First place in your heart, first place in your hopes. You already know point three, first place in your home. First place in your home. What I mean by that is not just literally the physical dwelling, right? Not just the structure. I'm not talking about a physical place, the house where you live. I'm talking about in your household, in your family. And this is true whether you have a, a large family or whether it's just you. You honor God by giving him first place in your home. By ordering the activity of your home around the things of God. You hear that? And that's going to step on some toes if you really think about it. Because we live in a world where, frankly, our kids drive everything that we do. Right? Ball games, activities, and those things. Those are God. Those are first place. And we'll come to church 
once we've done everything else. The point is, God deserves first place in everything. Think about, think about your family. I'm going to preach for a minute here, right? Think about your family. Think about the things that you do. Think about your pattern of life. If you have children, what are those patterns communicating to your children about the importance of your faith? You may say, well, we want our kids to know that God comes first. Does he or does baseball come first? Does God come first or does tumbling come first? Does God come first or does fill in the blank come first? Right? Come on. Be honest. But it's not just parents with children. It's those who've raised their kids as well. Well, you know, we've raised our kids. We've, now we want to just be free to go. We want to just, you know, we don't want to be tied down. And so we'll attend and be faithful and we'll be plugged in except for when, you know, when pleasure calls. And we've not, listen, there's nothing wrong with taking vacations. There's nothing wrong with baseball or sports. Hear me. I coach little league soccer. I love it. I've done it for years with our kids. And we, our kids are in everything under the sun. I'm not singling those things out saying we need to get rid of all that and, and home life just needs to be nothing but, you know, Bible study and, and Bible school. That's not, no, that, that's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is this. We tend to elevate everything else. When was the last time that you prayed together as a family? When was the last time you sat down as a family and opened God's word together? Or have you just passed that off to us here at church? That's the church's job. We're going to have fun and do our thing, and, and when we go to church, we'll read the Bible. When was the last time you put God first in your family, in your home, you gave him first place? And can I tell you, can I just be real honest for a minute? I'm preaching as much to myself there as I am to you. We, we struggle with that in my house too. We try to have devotion time together, and we ask my kids. They'll be honest. They'll tell it like it is. Probably been a few weeks at our house. So this is as much at me as it is at you. I just mean to say, if we're really serious about this, we will give God first place in everything. And that includes our homes. And then finally this, first place in your habits. First place in your habits. And the fact that it's so quiet in the room tells me I've stepped on a few toes. Maybe that's good, but let me step on a few more. Because if you are not spending daily time with the Lord, and I don't, listen, this is not about being legalistic. I'm not going to come to your house and, you know, check. This is not about do you ever miss a day. But I mean, if you are not purposing and seeking to spend daily time with God in prayer, study of his word, Let's just call it what it is. He is not first place in your habits. Do you intentionally pursue spiritual discipline? You may say, well, it's hard. Yes, it is. Well, it's easy for you. You're a preacher. Come on. I could spend 80 hours a week doing everything but studying the Bible. I have to work at it as much as anybody else. And it's hard work. And it takes discipline. That's why we call it spiritual discipline. But unless 
you are pursuing God with your heart, putting him first in your habits, then you have made something else your God. And he is not sit on the throne of your heart. We must purpose to spend daily time with him. Prayer, study of his word. I mean, it really comes down to this. What is the authority for your life? Is the authority for your life what you want or is it what this word says? And if it's what this word says, if that truly is the authority, if we really are surrendering our hopes to him and giving him first place in our hopes, then we have to, we have to discipline our will in the study of his word. We have to give him first place in our habits as well. And I'm not just talking about a daily quiet time. I'm talking about spiritual discipline in general. I'm talking about, does God have control over your tongue? I'm talking about, are you giving and following the instruction to tithe and and, and to give God first place in your finances? I'm talking about your time. Are you serving? Are you invested in the life of the church? I'm talking about I'm talking about, are you living life in community with other believers? Are you giving other people the ability to speak truth in your life at the heart level? Are you opening up and allowing there to be some accountability for who you are and for what you do and your spiritual practices? I'm talking about, do you put God first in your habits, in your spiritual discipline? And unless we do, he does not truly have first place. There's an old adage. I didn't come up with this. Frankly, I don't know who did. But it's true. It's very cliche, perhaps even, but it's true that says either he is Lord of all or he is not Lord at all. And that's at the heart of what it means for us to understand the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. See, we may think, ah, it's, that's easy. I don't have other gods. But I would, I would urge that we think again. Because I would argue, perhaps, that of all the commandments, this one will be the most difficult for us. We're going to understand what it means to, to not murder and not steal and, and to not... Uh, you know, go on down the list, to not covet, to not bear false witness. To, we're we're going to dig into all of these commands and how we relate to each other. And we're even going to look at what Jesus says because Jesus offers a commentary of sorts in the Sermon on the Mountain. And, and it gives us greater insight and even, quite honestly, sets the bar even higher than the law itself for us to live according to his standard of righteousness. But in all of that, I would contend the most difficult is also the first commandment, and that is that God would be first in all things, first in our hearts, first in our hopes, first in our homes, first in our habits. Let us, as the people of God, commit ourselves to him. In a moment, we're going to have a time of invitation, a time of response. And in our time of invitation today, our altars will be open. Maybe this morning God is laying a weight of conviction on you. Maybe the Lord is speaking to you, and he's convicting you about some things in your life where he is not first. Some, some places in your heart, some places in your life, perhaps in your hopes, in your habits, in your home, where God is not first. And what he's saying to you today is, I want to be first. Would you be willing today to respond in obedience to him? Would you be willing to, to confess that to him 
And our invitation, if it's your desire to just come forward and pray and maybe commit your way to the Lord today, then I would encourage you, come kneel here at our altar this morning and pray. Maybe you're here and you say, you know, before God can be first in anything else, he's got to be first in my heart. Because I, I don't know that I've ever really surrendered my, my life to him. See, I've, maybe you've been in church for a long time. Maybe you've, maybe you've even prayed a sinner's prayer and walked an aisle and done some of those things. But when you really examine the fruit of your life, when you really examine the depths of your heart, you understand that you've never really surrendered your heart to him. Today, would you be bold enough, willing to surrender your heart to Jesus so that he may be first in your life? As we pray in a moment and we stand to sing a song of invitation, our staff will be here at the front ready to receive you. And if God is moving, if he's working in your heart today, I would encourage you that you respond in obedience to him. We'll be here at the front ready to pray with you today. If you want to confess Jesus as Lord and Savior, commit your way to him. Surrender your heart to him so that he can be first place in your heart. You just come and visit with our staff. Let us walk you through what it means to, to, to just confess Jesus as Savior and Lord, to give him first place in your heart. However he is moving, I pray that you would respond in obedience to him. Would you join me now in a word of prayer?